Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 21st, 2022, a little less than a month ago. I had the uh, very distinguished um, Princeton University historian, uh, Julian E. Zelizer, on my show. He's been on it before. He's the editor uh, of a very interesting book that's just come out, The Presidency of Donald J. Trump. You've all heard of that character, I'm sure. A first historical assessment. Uh, Zelizer is the editor of these series of presidential books. I think he did one on um, Obama. He may have even done one on Bush. Uh, DJT, of course, is a unique character requiring a unique kind of book. Um, Zelizer had his own piece. And he also had a series of pieces. And in our conversation, uh, he talked about some of the other contributors. And he strongly suggested that I talk to my current guest, uh, Margaret O'Mara. Uh, she's a very distinguished uh, technology historian, um, broad historian of modern America. She's actually been uh, on the show before uh, talking about um, her book, uh, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. But I invited her back on today to talk about uh, her piece in the presidency of DJT, which is entitled The Gilded Elevator, Tech in the Time of Trump. And I'm thrilled that uh, Margaret is joining us from uh, Seattle, right, Margaret? That's right. That's right. It's great to be there. Where you teach. You teach at the University of Washington. I do. Yes. So tech in the time of DJT. Um, It seems like he didn't have as much impact on tech as he did on other sectors of the economy. That's my sense. I'm not sure your piece necessarily would agree with that. What's your take Mm. when historians look back in 20 or 30 years at the impact of Trump on Silicon Valley and and American technology? Yeah, well, two uh, large-scale, larger-than-life disruptive phenomena intersecting at once, right? Donald Trump as president and Silicon Valley and Seattle, the tech companies, scaling up to a size and an influence that far exceeds anything they achieved before. Uh, you know, that, that I think there's sort of some, a few really interesting and consequential points of intersection. And I tried to explore those in this chapter, which one was how Donald Trump was a user of tech and how technology platforms, particularly social media platforms, um, how, how he really used them with to more to greater effect than any other president right you call him, him or i'm not sure if it's you or your editor uh, the social media president just yeah to, yeah uh kennedy was the television president um mm-hmm. perhaps obama was the internet president uh is trump the first u.s president to really understand and, and leverage utilize social media well, it's really interesting because Obama certainly was hailed as the social media president and his use of Facebook in the 2008 election was a kind of watershed moment for both Facebook and for campaigns and elections where Facebook, it was kind of Facebook's entry into 
politics and and thinking the company and its its leaders thinking of themselves as a, a town square for political conversation, but also in a very positive, generative way, thinking about how the you know the sort of Obama era to Obama two thousand eight era Facebook both as a platform and also the way that Obama used it and the way it was hailed as a kind of great leveler, a way to have allow ordinary people to have more of a voice. It was, um, you know, bringing people, bringing the world together in a, with a presumption that that was a, a positive thing, gonna generate new things. And indeed, you know, social media has generated new connections and, and social movements of, of across the political spectrum, indeed. but. By the time Donald Trump is running for and being elected to office, social media platforms themselves are quite different. They're much larger. They are algorithmically mediated and amplified in ways that, because there's so much information coursing across these platforms, they, they are now tweaked so that the most interesting and engaging content rises to the top and rises to you the top. You use that word interesting. I, I heard an italic <laughs> there, Margaret. Mm. Tell me the truth. What word might interesting really represent? What's interesting? Well, what catches one's attention? And what, yeah. what or, really- uh, outrageous or fraudulent or, outrageous. or dishonest or nasty or hateful? Or nasty. Something that engages your your emotions. And, and we can be engaged by, you know, videos of cute puppies but really what what draws what draws eyeballs to social media and keeps them there it's the same thing as other types of media it's the secret to fox news and and other kind of cable news outrage yeah I, I, I take that point i want to sort of i want to i want to get your historical point on this because you mm-hmm. you talk about trump's use of social media as a yeah. manifestation of what you call the rage machine Um, And you also suggest that uh, the surest path to engagement was enragement. But you're a historian. Um, We all remember Howard Beale in Network, uh, (laughs) that wonderful film from 1976, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, more than 40 years ago, um, who was as mad as hell and became um, a celebrity, at least a fictional celebrity, through that (laughs) Has anything yeah. really changed then? Is a, 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 um, a, a enragement and um, rage, is that new in American politics, in American culture? Oh, heck no. I mean, that, that you know, we go back to the early, early American print culture. I mean, the, the print culture that generated the American Revolution and also was a hotbed of fake news and partisan slander and <laughs> very hot speech. You have the floor of Congress, you know, the, the setting of you know, knife fights, gunfights, and other types of violence. Uh, you know, this is not this is not to say that all of a sudden, you know, Facebook and Twitter came along and we all got angry because we were consuming these new media. Indeed, there have always been you know, partisan passions that have been inflamed by different types of communication. But here's the difference. Here's the sing- here's what makes it singular, just as Donald Trump is singular in the pantheon of American presidents, which is the speed and the scale, the information overload, as Alvin Toffler memorably named it in 1970, mm. this sort of sheer coursing of information that even in the age of the fictional Howard Beale <laughs> in the 1960s and 70s, you have social theorists and 
media scholars and, and media consumers who were saying, oh my gosh, we have this is the information age. Well, we are now in the era of you know, hyper information and disinformation. And Donald Trump's um, message and his method and his willingness to say things loudly and say things again and again and again, even if they were untrue, because if you say them enough, then maybe people start to believe them. That kind of shamelessness, quite frankly, was perfectly suited for the platforms in ways that probably the platform's designers and makers didn't, didn't realize, um, but certainly was extraordinarily effective, ultimately a much more effective vehicle for political speech. He really showed how social media could change politics. You talked about the, the, the classic analyses of, um, of American tech and media. Um, and one of the ones that often comes up in our show is Neil Postman's wonderful 1984 mm. book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, yeah. which was about public discourse in the age of show business, but in the age of television show business. Trump, of course, learnt his rage on television. Mm -hmm. Is there anything digital about Trump? I mean, could he have done what he did in, in the television age? It seems as if Postman wouldn't have been particularly surprised mm. uh, um, by, by Trump as, as, as many other, as, as many of the other rather pessimistic uh, analysts of American culture from Christopher Lash to Daniel Bell. I mean, what's different about yeah. him and what's different about digital technology? Yeah, well, you know, there's no single, you know, complex causality is the, the historian's currency, right? And one of the wonderful things about the opportunity to write, contribute to this book, um, that, that what I sought to do and what the other contributors sought to do was really to contextualize Trump and give him a history and talk about kind of how what came before enabled what what he did. I think he was indeed a, you know, the the celebrity culture of modern America. Look, we've had celebrity presidents before. Teddy Roosevelt was someone that people, you know, people by the thousands flocked to see just because he was this phenomenon and larger than life figure. Um, Ronald Reagan, the election of Ronald Reagan blurred the worlds of Hollywood and Washington DC in ways to, to a greater degree than before, but indeed, you know, John Kennedy and kind of his public image carefully cultivated by him during his, his life. Right, and profoundly dishonest. I mean, the opposite of the way yeah. he really was. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we, we've the image, the image making and the, the notion that the character of the president is critical um, is, you know, something, again, with, with deep roots. You know, you want to kind of believe in the man as well as believe in the policies. Uh, but, uh, you know, Trump is also, you know, where Donald Trump is just this fascinating um, character, it, you know, he looms large and I remind my students who were born, you know, uh, some of them born when The Apprentice was already on the air, D Donald Trump was a public figure, of a, a, a celebrity of sorts, even in the 1980s, but kind of as this outrageous, somewhat, you know, déclassé <laughs> social climber New York. He hasn't story. really changed much, has he? I mean, he, no, he hasn't. the Trump he show hasn't. Of, of the 1980s mm -hmm. and 90s is, is, is not that different from the Trump show of 2022. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it, but, but, you know, it's, it's it, it, maybe. What, what really kind of the, the ma turning, Donald Trump becomes a, a mass media phenomenon with the wildly successful run of The Apprentice, which starts off, you know, gangbusters goes on and 
kind of declines in the ratings, um, something that the press, I think the former president would, would probably contest. He cares a lot about ratings and crowd sizes and those sorts of things. But, uh, you know, this was a, and it was presenting Donald Trump as this, again, iconic American figure, the American dream, the self-made businessman, which of course he was not, someone who was a kind of business genius. So, so, so much so that he was here to advise other would-be business. I mean, to be uh, fair, to, I, I often hear that, Margaret. I'm, mm. This goes without saying, I'm no big fan of, of Trump. But people often say, well, he didn't really make himself. Sure, he inherited money from his father, but a lot of people inherit mother money from their fathers and lose all their money. He did turn mm-hmm. that money into more money. So he does have mm-hmm. some commercial prowess. He's not a complete failure. No. <laughs> Although, you know, the bigger, again, situating Donald Trump in a broader story of American political economy shows how, for example, in being in the real estate business in late 1970s New York, after New York City's near bankruptcy, when the elected officials at the city and the state level really doubled down on trying to create incentives for private sector real estate development, that turned out to be a path to um, for, for growing for growing the Trump fortune and Donald Trump was right at the center of it. So yes, he's been very good at kind of being taking advantage of um, of the runway laid out for him. But but like you know every story of great story of American business, it is part the um, the character and the, the the gumption and the actions and the willingness to take risks on the part of a particular entrepreneur. But it also is the other the broader economic, political, and social conditions that are creating an opportunity for them to do so. It's the combination of both, which is kind of holding those two ideas at the same time um, is, is a challenge. This is something I think you and I probably talked about this. We were talking about my book about Silicon Valley, which is sort of similar things uh, where you have, you know, a story both of um, extraordinary people like Steve Jobs, who who were in many dimensions, you know, stand out, and and there was sort of a reason they they were able to do what they did, but also a broader cast of characters and a broader set of conditions and social conditions, economic conditions, and particularly yeah. political conditions. We uh, we had uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, Albanian political theorist Leah Upi on the show this mm. week, and she quoted mm. Rosa Luxemburg famous remix of Marx saying we make our own histories but not quite in the way we want which is basically what you're <laughs> saying I guess yeah yeah and um and look you know like Silicon Valley many a Silicon Valley mogul as well as other moguls in American history from Andrew Carnegie forward um uh Donald Trump was extraordinarily good at, at telling a story about himself yeah but but storytelling is part of that yeah no i mean there's no Um, doubt that he and 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 that's particularly vivid now i think in in the context of biden's failure to tell any kind of narrative about himself we had um john carl the abc white Mm. house correspondent he's written a couple of excellent Mm. books on trump yeah first one was front row at the trump show in which he writes about his own experience covering trump what was um and it reminds me a little bit of the Truman Show, of course, the Trump and the Truman <laughs> Show, the 1998 mm-hmm. movie, ironically connected. What was life like for you, Margaret, in the four years of the Trump, of watching the Trump Show? You didn't have a front row, but you were there. You were in the theater. 
Yeah, I was in the theater. I was teaching about the American presidency during the Trump show. And I, before I was a historian, I worked in the Clinton show. I was a young staffer in the Clinton White House. Which was quite and a so show do, as well, right? That was well, it, memorable it was on lots of levels. It was quite a show. And, and so I think I also was thinking a lot about, you know, the life inside the West Wing and what, what that's like and what the stakes are. And the thing that really set Trump apart, I think there were so many things that set Trump apart. But there are two things that 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 really jump out, and I think again, kind of the, the social media age or the digitally mediated age, kind of uh, were well suited for these things. One is that unlike all of his predecessors, and I think I'm confident in saying all, um, is that Trump really go as you know, you run for president and you try and get you know, you got to get a certain number of people to vote for you in certain states, and that's all you know, you have to voters, right? But usually when people are elected, there is a move to try and, you know, to present themselves as I'm the president of all the people, right? I'm trying to persuade, I'm governing everyone. And Trump continued this extremely adversarial stance of, I got my people and then the rest of America, you know, these other people are not our people. This sort of very divisive, um, divisive stance that, that again, the, I think the nature of this sort of, the long tail of modern media um, not only digital media, but also television. Yeah, it's also a, as much a, a cause as a consequence of our yeah. social media age, of the filter mm-hmm. bubble and of echo yeah. chamber culture and politics. Yeah, and the geographic sorting, the you know, the fact that people simply are, you know, are less likely to, in sort of everyday experience, live, work, learn with people who are, are politically on the on the opposite side of things. But I think the, the other thing that was really standout about Trump that I was thinking about in the Trump show, and I think John Carl's books, as well as the other books by the, the people on the Trump beat that have come out, particularly in the last year, is the, you know, unlike his predecessors, and even to a greater degree than Ronald Reagan, who famously or infamously kind of appointed political appointees who weren't that all all that interested in maintaining or growing the institutions they were leading that ronald reagan was about making the government smaller and so didn't really care much about stewardship of some of these agencies and trump kind of took that to the next level not only was he because he was so polarizing and so controversial within the republican party prior to his election he didn't have there were a whole but you know all the never trumpers all the people who were really seasoned hands from the bush administration two prior bush administrations for example just weren't weren't available to him, or he was like, "I'm not going to bring them." Yeah, in the, the Peter Wainers and the David Frums of the world. Yeah, and, and so they were the ones who had experience. I think this was also something we see this in other presidencies. Heck, this was part of the Clinton presidency problem in the early years, because there was a real unwillingness to um, bring in people from the Carter administration, which had been the prior Democratic yeah. administration, because it had been a failure, you know, one-term failure, and there was so little institutional knowledge for, of the executive branch. And Trump kind of not only had, so he didn't have the A-team from the GOP side. And then he didn't even have the, you know, he kind of ended up with people who both were really disinterested in governance and also didn't know how to run these things, including the president. So that was really striking. And they took, sometimes you got the sense they actually enjoyed that that it was not something that they they didn't really want to run anything they just wanted to be enraged and throw bombs we are talking with margaret o'mara one of america's leading historians she's a contributor uh to a wonderful new book the presidency of donald trump a first historical 
uh, assessment. Uh, Margaret's piece is The Gilded Elevator, Tech in the Time of Trump. Um, Margaret, after the break, I want to talk more specifically about tech. We've talked broadly about Mm -hmm. the Trump show, what it looked like, its historical significance. But I want to talk about Silicon Valley, which is your expertise. You're the author of The Mm -hmm. Code, one of the best histories of um, of, of American technology. Uh, we'll talk uh, about uh, all sorts of things, Trump's relationship with Facebook and Google and, of course, Apple. We'll be back in about 60 seconds, everyone, so hold tight, please. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're with Margaret O'Mara, contributor to the new uh, anthology, The Presidency of Donald J. Trump. She's one of America's leading uh, historians of technology and her a uh, piece in the book is entitled the, Gel- the Gilded Elevator, Tech in the Time of Trump. As everything with Trump, I'm not sure words are always the best way to summarize it. Perhaps <laughs> tech, in the, tech in the Time of Trump is best summarized by this photograph. People listening won't see it. It's uh, a month into the election. The remarkable photograph of Donald, Day, the, Donald J. Trump Uh, and Mike Pence uh, meeting with leaders of large U.S. tech companies, including from left to right, gallery of multi-billionaires, Jeff Bezos, Larry Page, and Sheryl Sandberg. There were others in the meeting. It's a remarkable photo, isn't it? Um, It just seems to capture the absurdity, the surreal nature of the the (laughs) Trump presidency and indeed of tech. Yeah, it just surreal. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, look, the, the almost all the people around that that conference table. This is during the transition and Trump Tower, are people who had not only not voted for Donald Trump, but in some cases had very actively 
campaigned against him and campaigned for his opponent, Hillary Clinton, including notably Sheryl Sandberg, who's in the center of this picture. And at one point, he was leaning you know, forward. I'm not sure if that was symbolically yes, appropriate, but uh, leaning forward. And she and was Jeff one Bezos of the is wearing a tie. He looks like a schoolboy who's been forced to wear a tie for probably the first time. I know. In his life. Very rare to see these guys in ties, you know, they're in, and they're on Trump's ground. Um, but it's really interesting. So, you know, one of the things in the process of putting together this book, uh, former President Trump asked to talk with us contributors. <laughs> um, as yeah, he yeah. Julian talked about that, too. So you, you, yeah. you got on the phone with him, too. I did. I was on the phone with him, too, or on the Zoom with him, too, um, <laughs> sitting in the same place I'm sitting right now in my home office, <laughs> um, which was quite surreal. But it was very interesting because I asked him about his relationship with these moguls. And one of the things that I my takeaways from his answer and, you know, it, it, it was not, it, you know, what he what he talked about were not things that were things I didn't already know about. But what I really kind of in thinking about it later, I said, well, you know, thinking he, he, these are very, he knew that these weren't fans of his, these people in this industry. He had very embattled relations with them and often on the campaign trail would talk about how he's going after Jeff Bezos and how he's showing Silicon Valley, you know, you know what, but he saw himself as one of them. He, what he had in common with them, he saw, he was a he likes wealth and he likes power and they're very powerful and they're very wealthy. And so there's this interesting tension that runs through. And I think this also cuts both ways at that meeting at Trump tower, there was, you know, a little, um, you know, people didn't really make that much of a stink. I mean, people came to the meeting, first of all, it was very pragmatic saying, well, this guy's going to be president. Did, did every, was everyone there was Zuckerberg there? No, he was not there. Cheryl. Uh, Tim Sandberg Cook was, was though. He was on the other side of the Tim table, Cook, wasn't he? Mm -hmm, Tim Cook was there. And, um, and then notably, and the person who gets credit for bringing everyone together. Yeah, our old friend Peter Thiel. They want, yes, Peter Thiel, who, who's the one, the one vocal Trump supporter or the most vocal. Yeah, Trump we had Max Chafkin on the show. He's written oh, good. biography of, of, of Thiel, the chess player who brought his chess skills to politics. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, yep. Teal must have enjoyed that meeting, didn't he? Humiliating think, all his rivals. I am sure. <laughs> I'm sure he delighted. I can't believe that Bezos he, turned up. Why did he show up, do you think? Look, it, this man was elected president. You know, this, is, this was a ritual that business leaders have done time and time again. They come, they may not like who's been elected, but they come to the transition office or to the White House en masse to sit down and meet with the president and do what these tech leaders ended up doing, which is um, emphasized to, to Trump what they wanted from him, which was something that he was amenable to, which was a tax cut. That's where common ground is. You know, Silicon Valley's politics may lean liberal. Um, they may vote for Democrats, give money to Democrats, uh, but they as individuals, but as, as heads of major public corporations, they want lower corporate taxes. They want a smoother runway for um, for what they do, less regulation. And this is something that Silicon Valley companies have lobbied for for decades and have been remarkably successful in, in getting from leaders of both parties. Yeah, the regulation is interesting. And uh, 
I, I, I sense the degree of ambivalence in your piece about the legacy on regulation. Uh, headlines today in the Times about show uh, Lena Khan uh, trying to rewrite rules for big mergers. Uh, Khan, of course, wasn't appointed uh, under Trump, but mm-hmm. uh, no. she made her name <laughs> under Trump. And Trump himself seems ambivalent about or seemed ambivalent about antitrust as well, didn't he? He did. And that was a very another very re- revealing moment um, as I was putting this together and also in the conversation that, that we authors had with him. You know, he really, he's unperturbed by these, by big tech being so big. He thinks that it's essential, he, as he reframed, said again to me, that it, in competing with China. That, that, and he, and this is of course the Silicon Valley line too, when uh, encountering the, the extortion. You impersonate from, Trump when he says China. China. <laughs> it's hard not to. <laughs> oh, I can't, you know, only, I, I'm not. You're Trump a historian. Not I'm not going to put, so I'm not gonna put that in, on my resume. Yeah, I, I can be, I can. So, so my question then is wrong. So he isn't really ambivalent about regulation. It, or well, did he simply want to regulate Amazon when it was, or, or the Washington Post when it was critical of him? Exactly. It's all very, and this is again what sets Trump apart. And thinking about, you know, I think what our call was to do in this book is, is look, we're writing this these chapters mere months after the man has left office. Historians usually let the dust settle a little longer before yeah. you render judgment. But what we were really trying to do was put him in historical context. And this is one way in which Trump departed from predecessors in the kind of personal and one might say mercurial or impulsive nature of how he, his policy stance towards entities like the tech industry. On the one hand, he saw keeping Facebook and these other big guys big as essential to you know, facing a competi- competition from China, particularly in these consumer facing internet companies. And at the same time, he wanted them to, you know, be uh, penalized for uh, what he saw and other conservatives alleged was censorship of speech from the right end of the political spectrum. And, you know, and he, and he also wanted to see, you know, Jeff Bezos is the Jeff Bezos Washington Post. I mean, part of this was rhetorical, but he kind of railed against these people, these companies, these entities when they were doing things that he didn't see to be in his personal interest um, or in the interest of the policies he was trying to advance. But often it was far more personal because he was personal. He's always personal, with, 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 it seems, with Trump. Yeah. I mean, he yeah, never, it, for better or worse, he could never escape the, the personal. I wonder, another of the headlines mm-hmm. I was looking in the, in the FT today, a U.S. Senate committee advances a bill to tame big tech's power, uh, featuring a very... Red Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I wonder when historians of tech like yourself look back at the presidency of Trump, whether some of the more important developments were outside the presidency. This mm-hmm. growth, particularly on the left, and Klobuchar really isn't really on the left. She's a relatively yeah. centrist politician. Uh, a consensus about the need to regulate, the need for Alina Khan, the need for antitrust, the need for regulation in social media. Yeah, I think that's yes. So the Trump era was the time when um, lawmakers kind of fell out of love with Silicon Valley, not completely. Um, And certainly when the media 
um, when the, the business media kind of stepped back from the, the, the glowing profiles and the, so, so took a more critical stance, kind of what we call the, the tech lash. Um, and I'll say that a couple of years ago uh, or less, I was more, I, I, I was seeing so much energy on both sides of the aisle around regulating tech that I was assuming that sort of big changes were going to come down the pike. And of course, silly me, why should I assume kind of big, bold legislative changes were going to happen in this second decade of the 21st century? The system is so gummed up. Um, and so where we are right now, which is really interesting, is that you have still having hearings. We've had plenty of hearings. Mm. We've had legislation advanced by Klobuchar and others, bipartisan legislation. But there has yet to be action. Now, that's not to say there's not going to be, but it's really interesting. I think there are a number of things going on here. It's pretty stiff headwinds. And some of them are characteristic of the general challenge in regulating powerful business interests and also things that are particular to tech. So for one thing, in terms of the, the tech behaving like other big business is the tech lobby, the big tech companies, the big five, have spent, the Washington Post had a piece this morning that they spent 70 million, 70 billion, no, I'm getting my cut, $70 million lobbying Washington last year, which is a lot of money. That's a lot of dinners, lot. isn't it? It's a lot of dinners. It's, they're spending big. They're spending on par with pharmaceuticals and oil and gas, and these other big, big lobbying interests. It's a lot of money. So that is, you know, and that translates into a lot of, and they're hiring people from both who are former staff of these lawmakers to come and make the case of, well, you need to, you know, when you write regulations, you should write them this way. I mean, this is the way, <laughs> this is the way the sausage is made, right? This is the way it's gone down. So that's one thing. But I think the other thing that's really interesting here is this current, and this is historical. So Historically, the, 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 the groups that have been kind of fighting the good fight for a free internet and for the rights of the internet um, as, a, as a platform, as a set of companies since the 1990s, I'm thinking groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is founded in the early 1990s. Free as a, yeah. yeah. So, so they are, you know, and, but they have a kind of, um, although they are, you know, political pragmatists and work with lawmakers they have, you know, Silicon Valley's kind of latent libertarian tendencies, and I think just inherent suspicion of the government, which has a very, very deep history that kind of goes back to the Vietnam and Watergate era roots of, of the modern industry and the people who took it to, um, to scale. It, that is, there's, there's kind of a holding back on, you know, well, we want some regulation, but don't want the government to get out of hand. Like this, you know, the government could very easily take this to a, you know, a state of surveillance or curtailing speech and, and the freedom of business enterprise and the freedom to innovate. Um, and so there's this tension here in terms of those who are part of the conversation around tech regulation. So I think that's a, another dimension that's Margaret, which company um, in the four years of the president of the Trump presidency, which company do you think has been most dramatically changed? The New York Times piece this morning, what to wear in the metaverse. The word mm. metaverse has been appropriated by, of course, our old friend Mark Zuckerberg, of not, no longer at Facebook, at mm -hmm. um, metaverse. Mm -hmm. uh, we Meta, had Shira yeah. Frankel on the show recently. She had a very mm -hmm. revealing book about Facebook. My sense mm -hmm. is that of all these big tech companies, Facebook is the one that has 
been most dramatically or was the most dramatically affected by the the Trump presidency those four years, although some of it probably not directly by Trump himself. Yeah, well, it certainly had the harshest spotlight shined on it. Um, and those inside Facebook or you know, now Meta are, you know, quick to say, well, what about TikTok and Snapchat and YouTube? And, and they have and, a point. And actually, I mean, they become it, a very convenient, comfortable punch bag yes. for everyone. Yes, a very convenient. And, and, and to be clear, YouTube has stayed remarkably out of the line of fire. I mean, it's yeah, I mean not all our viewers will even know that Google owns YouTube. Yeah, and, and so it's it's you know it, there is a, they do have a point, but that being that being said, I I think there's a been you know such a sea change in the tenor of the coverage of companies like Meta, um, and also but here's the other thing that's going on that that the Trump era and beyond, um, one of the you know the Trump era is also the era of quantitative easing, and the era of central banks loosening up the money supply in the way that there is so much money running through the global financial system looking for a home and often finding it in tech and so this is so at the same time that the largest tech companies in particular are being you know called in front of congress to you know defend themselves and getting all sorts of investigative scrutiny that they didn't previously have Rightly so. I don't think this is unfair scrutiny. I think some of a lot of the press was they were given a free pass for a little too long. And even while academic researchers were like, hey, I think this Facebook thing, they're kind of invading privacy, don't you think? And, you know, no one was listening for a while. But at the same time, all this has been happening. What's been happening in the stock market? The stock of these companies has been going bonkers. What's been going on with the venture capital market the venture the amount of high-tech venture capital investment that's going on is many orders of magnitude larger than the height of the dot-com boom there right. is so much money and so and there's also new hysteria over web3 new technologies there's of course yeah. uh, crypto mm. um mm. quite recently mm. between mark andreessen perhaps the mm-hmm. most influential vc in silicon valley jack dorsey the former ceo of Twitter about yeah. Web3 and how it could yeah. democratize everything. So Silicon Valley hasn't stood still at all, has it? They haven't. But let's, to be clear, I, I, I would take any kind of promises of democratizing the internet coming from Jack Dorsey and Mark Andreessen with a grain of salt. They have skin in the game. They're billionaires. I, I don't know if mildly, the billionaires I couldn't agree put, more. Yeah, I mean, there, that's, and that's a real, con- I think another real contrast between then and now. So back in the 70s and the 80s and even the 90s, the people who were evangelizing the next big thing, whether it be personal computing or the World Wide Web, they were kind of the weirdos on the fringes, right? They might be entrepreneurs and they might be later, they might have become millionaires or billionaires. But at the time, they weren't people with power or money. They were, you know, again, the weirdos on the fringes, so to speak. And, and speaking of the have... weirdos on the fringes, we, <laughs> I've got a couple more questions. We've gone over a little bit, so I want to, yeah. but I want to okay. get these questions in. What, what happened to Peter Thiel in the Trump presidency? He started strong and then disappeared, mm-hmm. probably didn't want to be too visible. Did Is there a history of yeah. Thiel in the Trump age or did he simply go back to spending his money and enjoying himself? Spending his money and enjoying himself. Well, I'm so glad you had Max on because I think Max's book is absolutely yeah, it's a stellar. great book. And it, it's taught, a it taught read. me so much. And 
you know, what a hero taking on litigious and secretive Peter Thiel as a, as a subject. <laughs> I can't imagine. I, I wouldn't be that, quite that brave. Uh, you know, look, I, I think the day-to-day of politics and governing is a different order than, you know, getting someone elected and getting someone elected perhaps just to be contrarian. You know, I mean, Donald Trump was running as the ultimate contrarian candidate. He, that was his appeal in 2016. Uh, among so many voters just fed up with the status quo from both parties. They just wanted to turn the table over and see what happened. But the actual day-to-day of governing is, is perhaps not as interesting. But look, it's the Trump years and beyond have been very good years for Peter Thiel. His company, yeah, Palantir, was, which is probably uh, one Kraftin's of his... book was called yeah. The Contrarian, The Ultimate yeah. Contrarian, even more of a yeah. successful contrarian than Donald Trump. Finally, um, mm. uh, fin- uh, f- finally, Margaret, um, we had a couple of uh, writers on the show a week or so ago, both very dark books, one extremely dark, mm. Stephen Marsh writing about January 6th, predicting that America's already in civil war, and mm-hmm. Barbara Walter on the likelihood of a second civil war in America, both of which, uh, she's a little bit more optimistic, but both of which make social media and the digital revolution central in the possibility, at least, of an American civil war and of violence. It, 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 you... you, you touch on this in 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 mm-hmm. your excellent article mm-hmm. when historians look back at the trump presidency when it comes to tech is the role of violence and the the extra political um element in 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 in, in american history is that going to be most remembered you think and particularly january 6th well january 6th was yeah that's going to be in the history books no matter how how, how various folks are trying to spin it right now. Um, this was really, uh, and it was a, an extraordinary- from a, Driven by the internet in, in part. I mean, we can't blame January 6th part. on the internet, but it certainly played an important no. role. Yeah, and here's the thing, and here's the thing I think that sets the the, the, the internet media environment, environment different apart from the early print, cacophonous print culture of the early 19th century or the yellow journalism of the late 19th and early 20th or even the television and radio age of the 20th. It has, it enabled and it has since the earliest days of dial-up bulletin board services, it has enabled people with radical fringe and violent and racist views who were before it had a very hard time finding one another if they were if they were geographically scattered and it created a mechanism for those people to find one another and more even more for the for ideas to become radicalized in remarkably rapid time and i think the other thing that we haven't talked about in the trump era that i think affects this this confluence of politics and social media and, and, and technology is COVID. And this pandemic yeah. that forced people apart into these digitally mediated worlds where people were going to school and going to college and going and going to work or having to work out but outside the home but still working through screens and mobile devices to do their work that these digital platforms just became, we were all immersed, we've been immersed in screens for two years. And that alienation and the ability of these attention sucking platforms to radicalize some people, I think that is where we, where we see one, you know, how we get to January 6th, 2021, which also was, will go down in history as 
everyone had a cell phone. Everyone was their own videographer. Everyone was making. Yeah, you their mentioned own that, and, and it's it's yeah. so important. And when you see the photos, I haven't included any. Everyone is behaving as if it's a sporting event. Uh, Margaret, yeah. uh, thank you uh, for a wonderful um, overview, a tech overview of, of, of Trump and, and tech uh, in, in your contribution, the presidency of Donald J. Trump. Um, a must read for anyone who cares about contemporary history. We had Carlos Lazada, the Washington Post uh, writer, who wrote a book about the 150 books on Trump uh, and what they tell us about Trump. Is there a particular <laughs> book that you think best informs us about Trump? We talked about John Carl earlier. Was there one book that somehow captured the peculiar, the surreal, the absurdist nature of the Trump age? <laughs> It's hard to sum up one book that's a very tall bookshelf. I mean, I think our, our collection is going to be a, a pretty great and lasting contribution to that. Um, but in terms of the, you know, the digital age in Trump, I think some of the, some of the books you've already mentioned, uh, Cecilia and Shira's book on Facebook, yeah. um, Max's book on Peter Thiel, have just done an extraordinary job of, of you know, reportage and, and the first draft of history. There's, you know, when I think about Trump, I also think too about what were the, the impulses in political in American political culture that gave rise to Trump as a as a politician. And I think, you know, the books that I recommend to my students are ones like um, Dan Carter's biography of George Wallace, The Politics of Rage, mm. um, that 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 are really helping us understand that the things that he was and is able to do on the stump and in governing and the and the the, the divisions um, and the rage and the anger and the violence that is just below the surface and many many times it, it, that exploiting that you know he was he he had predecessors and I think reading American political history of the last of the both you know figures of the last fifty years gives us a real window into how we got to. 2016 to 2021, and who knows beyond. Who knows beyond? Wise words, as always, from Margaret O'Mara, one of America's leading historians. She is a contributor to this new um, anthology, The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, a first historical uh, assessment. Thank you so much, Margaret. Uh, you're always great to have on the show. You've been on it before. You will certainly be on it again if I can get you. Keep well, keep <laughs> being wise, keep getting your students to think historically. That's what historians do. We need you more than ever. Uh, so we'll perhaps talk again later in the year. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.